Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Chad. Before we start this episode of The Most Perfect Album, let me say the words which I know you know. You know that I know you know, which is that More Perfect needs you. The only reason we were able to do this season at all is because you stepped forward and helped us pay for it. Now, this project came about because we were looking at the Supreme Court and we wanted to know how did we get here? It's a question uh, many of us are asking right now. Uh, This season, we wanted to take it in a different direction. We brought you 27, the most perfect album. Kind of an homage to Schoolhouse Rock. That's how I learned about the government. And the idea was, like, in this civics challenge moment that we're all living through, let's get musicians together to help us bring the amendments to the Constitution to life. Now, in the podcast, we're telling stories about the amendments, convening a conversation about this on going struggle for the soul of America. That is the grand story these amendments tell, I believe. We're just getting started, but we can't do any of it without your support. More Perfect, we hope you agree, is a -a one-of-a-kind thing, but it does not exist without you. So as our way of saying thank you and encouraging you to continue to support the show, we will give you because we are public radio to our core, it is in our DNA, we will give you a tote bag for a $10 a month contribution, which helps us make more perfect. We will give you the more perfect tote, which you might call the most perfect tote. This tote, real talk, is actually quite beautiful. Nice visual design, and it will carry your things. And as it does, it will carry our hearts. For $10 a month, we will send you the more perfect tote. So go to radiolab.org slash moreperfect, Click the donate button, or even easier, just text the word "more perfect" to 70101. Then it just takes a few seconds on your phone. That's radiolab.org/moreperfect. Click the donate button, or text the word "more perfect" to 70101. And thank you from all of us here. Um. Okay. So, what if we start by playing people the voice memo? Just to bring a little bit of joy into the world this week. Yes, yes, I like. Yes, I like that. We should say uh, who we both are, though. I'm Jad Abumrad. You are Susie Lechtenberg, uh, executive producer. More perfect. Yeah. So I guess what people should know is that you went to Nashville, which is your hometown, mm-hmm. to try and convince this artist to be on our album. And you know that I'm a super fan, mm-hmm. and. You were nice enough to do this. Okay, let me just say hi to her. Hi, Susie. This is Dolly Parton. How are you? I understand you're a fan of mine, and I appreciate that. Maybe I'll get to meet you sometime when I come to New York. Uh, absolutely. I okay. think she'd like that. All right. I'm here with your friend, Jad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. All right. Seriously, it just makes my heart explode every single time. She's awesome. Dolly Parton did do the album. We're going to play you the song she made in just a bit. It's about the 19th Amendment, women getting the right to vote. And we're going to play that amendment this week so we can play you Dolly Parton. Just feels like it's needed. Past couple of weeks, doesn't matter which side you're on. It's been hard. America. You know what? These people are here. Women are angry. America. If I have 
have to go to jail because I'm holding up a poster now. They're going to arrest me. America. I don't care. I will to the last second be here. I will go to jail. This is ridiculous. America. I know that everything that these women say more than likely is true. It's been a tough stretch. And now things are shifting, of course, to uh, the next big milestone. Lawmakers here in Washington are now focusing on the midterm elections less than a month away. And a lot of the focus uh, right now is on women. Women are ready to vote. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says, take your pain and turn it into power. America. On November 6th. With this in mind, we bring it back to Dolly. If you've been listening to our series, you know that we made an album about the amendments to the Constitution. It's called 27, The Most Perfect Album. And Dolly Parton chose to write a song about the 19th Amendment. Women's right to vote. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. We're going to play the song uh, in its entirety. August 18th, 1920, Women's Suffrage Amendment ratified. Women have been fighting for the legal right to vote since the 1840s. In 1890, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NAWSA, was established with Susan B. Anthony, its leading force. But women have been fighting for their rights since the very beginning of time. We couldn't dance, then said we couldn't drink And unless a man allowed it, they said we couldn't think They said we shouldn't speak, till we were spoken to But there was just so much back then we weren't allowed to do But the first bite of that apple, I guess revealed the truth That's when he got smart and that's why Adam don't like fruit But that old tree of knowledge had some limbs that broke we had to fight for women's rights. They said we couldn't vote. It is the duty of the women of this country to secure for themselves a sacred right to vote. We carried signs, we cursed the times, marched up and down the streets. We had to fight for women's rights, wore blisters on our feet. We got tired of seeing all our dreams go up in smoke. Burdens more than we could tote. Having lies crammed down our throats. But that old dam finally broke. When women finally got the right to vote. We want to vote. We want to vote. They said a woman's place was staying in her hut. Washing, cooking, cleaning. Wiping babies' butts. They said she'd never see the day we'd equal up to them. But here we are, we've come so far, I guess we sure showed them. The first part of that apple, I guess, revealed the truth. That's when he got smart, and that's why Adam don't like fruit. That old tree of knowledge had some limbs that broke. We had to fight for women's rights, they said we couldn't vote. Suffrage amendment must be passed. We pray- 
Dolly Parton with a song for the 19th Amendment. Yes. Um, I think what is implicit in, uh, in her lyrics there, such good wordplay in, the, in those lyrics, um, but I think what is implicit in, in what she's writing about there is just what a struggle it was, not just to get to the point of having a 19th Amendment, but to get the amendment itself ratified. You want to talk about history being sort of hinged on these very tenuous moments where it could have gone another direction. Well, this is one of those moments. It all came down to the wire on a hot summer night in Tennessee. I'm going to turn uh, for these liner notes to my Radio Lab family, producers Latif Nasser, Tracy Hunt, and of course, my compadre, comrade at arms, Robert Krolwich, are here with the story. Now, are y'all in New York? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put on my most Southern accent now. <laughs> I, I, I promise oh, I'm... Wait, wait, you don't have to pander to us. Wait, I, thought, I thought that was pretty Southern, but yes. you can I'm go gonna, more I'm Southern. Gonna put, I'm going to put on my most Southern accent here. All right, so this is Carol Busey. Well, you know, we Southern girls, we can handle you anything. You can handle that it. That's right. <laughs> Carol is a professor of history at the Volunteer State Community College in Tennessee near Nashville. And you all do understand that Nashville is now the it city seems to be but for our story there was a moment in nashville's history where it was not just the it city it was the last stand in a long and vicious struggle for women to get the right to vote it was the the summer of 1920 That's an oral history recording of a 101-year-old woman named Abby Crawford Milton, who, in that very hot summer of 1920, descended upon Nashville with hundreds and hundreds of other suffragists like herself, uh, anti-suffragists, lawyers, politicians, business people. They all came to Nashville for this fierce, the fierce legislative, battle. legislative battle that ever was waged on this continent. Okay, now, let me stop here and take us one step back. <clears throat> okay. And we're also going to bring in historian Jill Lepore. I'm a professor of history at Harvard. Where, where do you want to start? Okay, so when the United States... She told us that at the end of the Civil War, around 1865, as Congress was considering this new amendment, which would give former slaves the right to vote, you had this small band of women who were wishing, hoping, fighting to be included in this new amendment. Women expect that the 14th Amendment is going to lift any discrimination within the Constitution on the basis of race, color, or sex. They had been the stalwart allies of abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And women are really important to the founding of the Republican Party. And so when they say to them, oh, yeah, okay, you guys are going to do this amendment, obviously you're not going to forget us, right? Like, we're going to right this political wrong. Let's do it. Like, let's just do it. Let's get this done. So this proposed amendment is being talked about in Congress. It's being perfected. It's being tweaked. And it's about to come to a vote. When almost at the last minute, the word male is put in there. Mm. Amending the amendment so that only men can vote. And 
It's the first introduction of the word male into the Constitution. So not only does the 14th Amendment fail to guarantee women their citizenship and the rights that come and privileges that come with citizenship, it specifically excludes them. Wow, what a betrayal. <laughs> That's right. We're starting back at square one. So, you know, now at that I point, some women are like, God damn it. Like, all right, we're just going to go vote. And so, for instance, a woman named Virginia Minor actually tries to vote. They won't let her. Goes to the Supreme Court. I guess you won't be surprised to hear. Are you on the edge of your seats? What is the Supreme Court? <laughs> Oh, no, what are they going to do? I can't wait to know. It's a clipping. (laughs) The Supreme Court says, oh, ladies, oh, it's so cute that you thought you were included in the Constitution. (laughs) No, 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 no. We love you, but no. And then in 1878, Susan B. Anthony proposed another amendment to Congress for the right to vote. People laughed about it and then put it aside. And for the next almost 40 years? There was no movement at all on this amendment. Until? June 4th, 1919. Just after World War I, after centuries of suffering, suffrage. Both houses of Congress finally passed the 19th Amendment to give women the right to vote. The amendment came after months of women protesting outside the White House and years of working jobs that before the war had only ever belonged to men. But... Of course, it also came with a constitutional catch. It had to go to the states to be ratified. Which just means that each state had to vote to approve it. This is something that's, uh, just to break in, that's uh, sometimes a bit hard to grasp. Congress can write an amendment to the Constitution, but it doesn't actually go into effect until three-quarters of the states decide to go along with it. Three-fourths of the state legislatures have to ratify the amendment. And how many states would that be? Well, 36 in this particular uh, instance had to vote for it. Now, Right off the bat, they got Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, and then after that, it's just like dominoes. You get state after state after state. But then we got to 35 states, and it stopped. It just got stuck at 35 states. Now, knowing that the suffragists were only one vote shy, the anti-suffragists beefed up their campaign, which made it just harder and harder to get that final state. It was looking grim. Until there was one state, just one state, that seemed like it might be teetering. And so... August of 1920, Nashville, Tennessee, legislators from all over the state start arriving at Union Station. They're just immediately greeted by both pro- and anti-suffragists. Trying to pin either a yellow or a red rose on their lapel so everybody across town would know which side they stood on. That was uh, Tom Vickstrom. He's the unofficial historian of the very place these legislators were headed. The most fashionable place in town. The Hermitage Hotel picture of the lobby during the month of August, swarming with people, both pro and anti-suffrage. Women cooling themselves with palm leaf fans. And of course, no air conditioning. Men smoking cigars. Yes, a lot of smoking politicians. And uh, on the second floor mezzanine, you have the headquarters of the anti-suffragists. And it's actually worth noting that a lot of the anti-suffragists were women. Campaigning actively against the right to vote. They think it's going to reduce, in some ways, their moral authority within the household. Women belong only in private life, not in public life. Public life is demeaning and it's besmirching. 
So on the uh, second floor, you had the Antis. And then on the third floor, Suite 309, you have Carrie Chapman Cat, the leader of the pro-suffrage side. She had no children and her husband had died. She had devoted all of her energies towards this one goal of getting women the right to vote. So she's the, she's the big Washington, the Bigfoot from Washington. She is. She is, is really much like a general both groups are there because this hotel is just a few blocks away from the state house, and they are trying to convince as many Tennessee legislators as they possibly can to come over to their side. There was all kind of hijinks and, uh, you name it, uh, eavesdropping. The antis would send the legislators fake telegrams. Say, home, your wife is or fake phone call messages. So the suffragists are running around trying to stop these legislators from leaving town. Meanwhile, there's a room back at the hotel called the Jack Daniels room. Where there were some Jack Daniels being dispensed by the anti-suffrage people. And supposedly pro-suffrage legislators could be heard through the hotel walls singing anti-suffrage songs. Tennessee is supposed to be dry, and yet the antis are flagrantly violating prohibition by having these events in which the liquor flows quite well. All the members that they could get drunk, they took our votes away from us. The closer and closer they got to the final day of voting, it became apparent that people who had come to town saying they were in favor of ratifying this amendment who had been wearing yellow roses started wearing red roses. Red roses, uh, if you remember, were worn by the side that didn't want women to get the right to vote, the antis. Yellow roses were worn by the side that did. And on the morning of the final vote, there had been so many red roses to yellow roses to yellow roses to red roses flip-flopping, floppity, flipping around that by this point, no one had any idea what was going to happen. That's exactly right. Let we me will... just stop you here for a second. Sure. Uh, is it now clear to everybody that if the legislature of Tennessee passes this, that it will become part of the U.S. Constitution? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you didn't have any cushion states that you could go to, you know, Nevada next. There were no cushions. It's now or it's going to be a long time. And finally, it's going to happen one way or another on August the 18th. So the morning of the vote, the hotel starts emptying out. Everyone heads over to the state capitol. But Mrs. Cat, Because she was going to be looked at as an outside agitator. She decided to stay behind. In the state capitol, in the house chamber. It's hot and humid. And the room is packed. The 96 legislators are settling at their desks. And above them, in the gallery around the top of the house chamber, stand the suffragists. They are there along with the anti-suffragists. And you can be assured that both sides have their little pads and are counting the votes. And as they look at the roses, there are 48 yellow roses and 48 red roses. Oh, man. <laughs> And are these roses reliable? I mean, can, well, can you... supposedly, if you're wearing a red rose, you're going to vote against it. So before the voting even begins, they can see that we've lost. Because you have to have a you have to have a majority. Yeah, and the Speaker of the House, he had initially supported suffrage, but he's really on the side of the antis by this time, 
And before they really start the vote, he actually steps down on the floor to give a speech against ratification of the amendment. So, you know, there's another letdown, you know, it's lost, we've lost, we've lost. And two blocks away, in suite 309 of the Hermitage Hotel, sits Carrie Chapman Cat. She was very nervous about what was going to happen. So what's she going to do? She said, there is only one thing left to do. We can pray. Huh. So they start the roll call. And as these names are called, one by one, these men stand up and voice their vote. If they are wearing a yellow rose, they say, I, for women's suffrage. If they're wearing a red rose, they say, nay. And among these legislators sits a young man. Harry T. Byrne, a Republican legislator from Nyota, Tennessee. At 24 years old, he's the youngest legislator in the House. Small man, little glasses. With a serious face. The air is tense and still. Until... The young man stands from his desk. A red rose in his lapel. But in his pocket... He had a letter from his mother over there in Nyota. Dear son, we've had nothing but rain since you left. Her name was Feb Byrne. Uncle Bill and Mr. Bushnell came over this p.m., stayed about an hour. They were in the Ford. We haven't had that car out since you left. And if this rainy weather doesn't let up, I fear we'll all have to stay at home the rest of the summer. And really, it's just this ordinary letter. You'll tire of what I'm writing, but I haven't... From a mom to to her son. Murdy was real sick yesterday, but was better this morning. She's been complaining all summer. But tucked into all of those mundane details about life in Nyota, there was this little motherly dig. A prodding. I've been watching to see how you stood, but haven't seen anything yet. You know, son, I've been reading about the suffrage fight in the papers, and I really hadn't seen your name anywhere. (laughs) And then she says, Don't forget to be a good boy and help Miss Thomas Cap. Vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. With lots of love, Mama. Harry T. Byrne is wearing a red rose. And his vote? He votes for women to have the right to vote. So... Up there in the balcony, there's just a moment of silence. What's going on here? What's going on? You can imagine this. You can imagine this. And then it dawns on you. Hey, Harry's changed his vote. It's not going to be 48 to 48. It's going to be 49 to 47. (laughs) (laughs) The suffragists, you can imagine, are crying. The antis are furious. You can imagine the total chaos here in this situation. But there must be an awful lot of attention paid to Harry, right? Like what? Well, the legend is that the antis start chasing Harry through the house chamber. 
Harry is completely undone. Oh my gosh, what have I just done? So he jumps out a window. Not Now he's not jumping out a five-story window, but he gets out of the building and shimmies down the ledge to the state library, which is in the same building, where he gets in the window there and Mrs. Moore, the librarian, Mary Daniel Moore, hides him in the stacks until the storm blows over. Now that's the legend. Wow. Did Harry really climb out of that Did any shimmying happen? (laughs) Yeah, we don't know how exaggerated that part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) The shouts from the hill carried all the way back to the Hermitage Hotel. Mrs. Cat could hear them from her window. She knew they'd won. It, It was, in fact, passed. The certificate of ratification was sent to Washington, D.C., and received by the Secretary of State. The final tally was actually 50 to 46. After Harry changed his vote, one other legislator switched sides, but it was clearly because Harry had changed first. That's right, see? So that vote was the re- that vote be- became the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution? That's, well, that's- yes, in a, in a manner of speaking, yes. After the vote, Mrs. Catt sent Feb Byrne a telegram. You are blessed with a brave and honest son. Whatever the enemies of justice and decency may do now to show their vengeance upon him, he is bound to have a great future. You will ever be proud of him. Carrie E. Chapman Cat. Well, his political career ended rather short. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he took his mother's advice, and uh, he did get his name in the paper, didn't he? just a wonderful tale. And I always would end the story by saying, now just think about this, folks. In the middle of nowhere, petty Texas, my grandmother went to the Methodist church in November of 1920 with her four-year-old daughter at her side and voted because of something that took place right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Little Nashville pride never hurts. That was Radio Lab's Latif Nasser with Tracy Hunt and Robert Krolwich. Now, just to sort of sour the mood for a second, the 19th Amendment was obviously a massive milestone for women in the United States, but it was pretty well understood by the legislators in that room, and in fact by many of the women who led the suffragist movement, that this wasn't a victory for all women. This was a victory for white women. Historians will tell you that uh, this was, uh, you know, the 19th was great for middle-class white women. Didn't do a whole lot for black women in the South, uh, where for decades, women and men of color who tried to vote uh, had to deal with literacy tests, white-only primaries, straight-up violence and intimidation. And I think one of the grand stories of the amendments to the Constitution, if you read them chronologically, what you see is this, uh, this story of a country striving for these ideals, not quite getting there, and then trying over and over to fix it. And with each fix getting maybe a little bit closer, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's the story of a country growing up. Maybe that's too generous a reading, but that's honestly how I see it. So after uh, the 15th and the 19th Amendments, which should have solved the voting question but didn't, if you jump forward, you get to the 24th Amendment. 24th Amendment. 
abolition of poll taxes. Which tried to address one of the main ways votes have been suppressed throughout American history. The right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay poll tax or other tax. January 23, 1964, we ratified the 24th Amendment, eliminating poll taxes in federal elections. And for our album... Musician Caroline Shaw created a really, really beautiful song for us. Our basic reason is that you cannot put a tax on the right to vote in any form or fashion. Every time, every day, the default action means in effect, it continues to disenfranchise uh, voters and people who would like to express their views on governmental affairs in the state. That was Caroline Shaw with a song about the 24th Amendment. Kevin Morby also did a song for us about the 24th. You can listen to his song, all the songs, at uh, themostperfectalbum.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect. We'll continue in a moment. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect. Just heard from Caroline Shaw before her Dolly Parton. And the story that is behind the story that is at the center of her song Uh, about the 19th Amendment, women getting the right to vote. Very dramatic story. And uh, marching right along with the most perfect album, our next band has an extremely personal relationship to the amendments, perhaps closer than any other band on this album. So close, so personal, that they've actually performed on the steps of the Supreme Court. Sorry if my note's too sharp. Sorry if my voice is too raw. Performed there while being sued by the federal government. 
but just to put that in context. Um, so why don't we start? Why don't you tell me um, your name and the band you're, you're a part of? My name is Simon Tam. I'm from The Slants. So I've been a part of the band from the very beginning, which I guess goes back to about 2006. Simon spoke to Susie Lechtenberg, more perfect executive producer in the studio. Uh, the Slants... Uh, are sort of an all-Asian synth pop band. The Slants call their music Chinatown dance rock. That's uh, one way they've been described on the TV. I wanted to start a band. Uh, Simon told Susie that uh, he formed the band because he was tired of there being no Asians in rock music, and he chose the name very explicitly because of the stereotype. You know, Slanted Eyes is... The physical trait that I was ashamed of. He says growing up he was bullied because of how he looked. And made fun of. But then when it came time to rock, he decided to take the term. You know, why not make it something that we could be proud of instead? And flip it. Something that could be cool, like an anthemic reclaiming of a stereotype. And so the the idea for the slants was born. And did you ever get pushback from anyone uh, about the name? No. The Asian American community loved what we were doing. The first time I kind of knew or was made aware that there was any kind of problem with our name was when my attorney called me after we had worked on the application to register our our trademark. He calls me up and it says, hey, Simon, we've got a problem. Simon figures, oh, I must have done the trademark paperwork wrong. You know, that paperwork's very confusing. But the attorney said, no, it's not that. He says... The problem is that they say your name is disparaging to persons of Asian descent. Their name was considered derogatory to Asians. Wait, are they saying we're racist to Asian people? He proceeds to read me Section 2A of the Lanham Act, something you know written in the 1940s that basically says you can't register trademarks that the government considers to be scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. What was confusing to Simon... And to his attorney, when they looked into it, is that they weren't the only slants out there. The uh, trademark office had given something like that term, a trademark for that term. They actually gave it out to hundreds of other people. When we asked them, like, why this case? Like, why did you deny it for the band? The trademark office's response was basically, hey, if you go to the slants.com, you'll see photos of Asian people all over the website, which was true. I mean, it was literally my face. So to him, it seemed like, wait, the essence of this rule is that anyone can register the slants as long as they're not Asian. Which seemed kind of odd to him. Not to mention, potentially, a violation of his 14th Amendment rights. We haven't talked about the 14th Amendment yet. We will. That's the one that says everybody gets equal protection under the law. Here he seemed to not be getting equal protection because he was Asian on account of this rule that was trying to prevent discrimination against Asians. Anyhow, uh, the band starts a campaign, tries to get a bunch of organizations to write letters for them. We get every single Asian-American newspaper in the country to write on our behalf. And the trademark office still said, no, that's not good enough. And so they appeal. They say you're violating our 14th Amendment rights, our First Amendment rights to free speech. The uh, trademark office countersues. And to make a long story short, the case ends up at the Supreme Court. What is? I cannot imagine being taken to the Supreme Court. So what is your, your feeling when you find that out? Well, I always wanted to go. I <laughs> was hoping it was under different circumstances. But at this point, this is a lot bigger than my band. Like, knowing how long music groups last, this 
case could very well just continue to exist, whether I had a band or not at that point. So in January of 2017. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 15-1293, Lee versus Tam. The Supremes heard the case. Mr. Stewart. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And Simon and his bandmates were right near the front. What, what were the oral arguments like? Well, the oral arguments were extremely surreal. When a person uses as his mark words that have other meanings in common discourse, that it will distract the consumer from the intended purpose of the trademark qua trademark. Which it is was a room full of non-Asian people arguing about what was offensive to Asian people. These words are known to cause harm, to cause controversy. Kind of absurd. It wasn't until about halfway in, especially when one of them not because of the content. When Justice Ginsburg speaks, while she was questioning the government's attorney, she says, "Hey, does it not count at all that everyone knows that the slant is using this term not at all to disparage, but but, simply to but to describe." I think it is the sting out of the word. Well, if the trademark of course, my heart swells, and I'm like, yo, I think I'm in love with the Supreme Court (laughs) Justice. Like, court adjourns. Simon goes back home. Doesn't really hear anything for months until June nineteenth, two thousand seventeen. I woke up, and there were like seven hundred sixty (laughs) notifications on my phone. Supreme Court ruling: Portland's indie rock band. The slants will be allowed to trademark their name. The U.S. Supreme Court is siding with the local Asian American band that's been fighting a long time to trademark its name. And we found out that it was unanimous in our favor. And so? Sorry if my notes too sharp. Sorry if my voice is That is how the slants ended up doing an impromptu unplugged set on the steps of the Supreme Court. Sorry if you take offense. Made a pros and played great men. But we know you feel changed. The song looks so strange, but nothing's gonna get in our way. Interestingly, uh, some people in the wake of that decision speculated that the Washington Redskins, of all people, would benefit from this land's victory. The team's trademark had been denied because many Native Americans felt it was derogatory. And a couple weeks after the Slant's victory, the denial of their trademark was voided. And so, like everything with the Supreme Court, there's a lot to unpack. But for our purposes, out of the laundry list of American bands that have spoken out against the federal government, the Slants are the only ones, to our knowledge, to go to the Supreme Court and win in a unanimous decision. And so obviously, when we decided we were doing this amendments album, the Slants were one of the first bands that we reached out to. Yeah, so we were originally approached to do the the album, and I think requested to write a song about the First Amendment because, you know, we, we had such a direct experience with it. But I thought it was a little too obvious for us to do so. And then I started thinking about the different amendments and how I always wanted to do something around the 18th and 21st Amendment, which is, of course, Prohibition. 18th Amendment. Prohibition of liquor. And then what eventually revoked it. 21st Amendment, repeal of prohibition. Because I always just found it really fascinating, just the history around it. I mean, the reason why prohibition didn't really work was because, you know, the people didn't accept it. So it kind of shows that when you kind of stomp out certain rights that people feel are inherent, they kind of find ways around it anyway. And then I 
I thought of this idea, which I shared with my guitar player. I said, what if we use 18 and 21 like a metaphor for age? Because when we turn 18, we assume that we have all these rights. Like you have the right to vote, you can buy cigarettes or other things, but you can't drink. So you actually don't have your full set of like adult rights until you turn 21. And so I shared that with him and my guitarist, Joe, started writing this song called 1821, which is basically kind of about that, about growing up and, and the disillusionment, the loss of innocence and that sort of thing. Remember counting the days, remember grasping for moments. Freedom was a digit away. Remember thinking the world close upon you like an island. Peering through seeing proof. Remember when you were teenage staring up at the ceiling. Emotions like a runaway train. Remember making the promise to yourself not to be cautious. Flawless and wandering. Man, the slants killed it. I love that song. It's such an anthem. You can hear the whole thing. All the songs at themostperfectalbum.org. More Perfect is created by me, Chad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Julia Longoria, Kelly Prime, Saria Kari, and Alex Overington. With help from Michelle Harris, Ellie Mistal, David Gable, and Nora Kettler. Thanks to Jeffrey Wright for reading the amendments for us. This episode was produced with Latif Nasser, Tracy Hunt, Matt Keelty, Anna McEwen, Robert Krolwich, Soren Wheeler, Dylan Keefe, and Rachel Cusick from The Lab. back soon with stories and songs about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.